0: Revelation chapter 19 then, I especially point out tonight, verse 12 and verse 13. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now last week when we commenced looking at this vision of the heavenly warrior king, coming forth out of heaven upon this white horse and going forth to conquer and conquering. And not on his own, but he is the commander of the forces and there follows him all the armies of heaven too who are red and white linen, clean and true and faithful as well like himself. And they're coming forth, so we are supposing it to be the end him who said I will come again is doing exactly that coming forth but now not in the garments of humiliation but in all displays of glory. And last week we commenced looking at the names that he bears and we saw that there are four names that the apostle draws attention to. The first in verse 11 Called faithful and true. And then the last, or the fourth, in verse 16, on his vesture and on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These these are the first and the last of the four names. But enclosed between these two are two other names. And those are the names that we read in our text. This evening. While we did spend some time on the other two names last week, I suggest that these two names tonight are the most important names of the four in some respects. I say first of all that because these two names have been centralized in the centre. You have a couplet at one end, faithful and true, and then you have a, a couplet. At the other end, king of kings and lord of lords. So you have a couplet at each end. But then in the middle of that, these two names that we're going to consider tonight. So they're centralized in the text in the middle. The third and the fourth names. And they're not couplets as the other two are. And then as well as that, not only are they centralized. These names capture the essence of his character. These names tell us more about who he is rather than uh, what he is or what he does or his attributes, faithful and true, or attributes. We could say that of the saints, if they're faithful and true, King of kings and Lord of lords, that's, that, that's an office. As kings of the earth have offices and they're kings, he's king of kings. So that's bringing out his office. But I suggest that these two in the middle are not just telling us how he acts and what he does and what offices he holds, how he behaves. But these names are capturing his person. Why he's different from everybody else. Why he's not like those who are on the Horses that are following him in the clean linen. And why he's not like other men. That he's coming forth to judge. Yes he he is a man. He has the the raiment of a man. He looks like a human warrior on a white horse. But there's more to him than that. He's not a mere man. And these two names in the middle are telling us that they're capturing his divine nature, his deity, the mystery of his person. So they tell us something of the mystery of who he is. These names are telling us he is not a creature and he's not a mere man. These two central names tell us he is the Son of God and God the Son. Now, first of all, then, verse 12. He has a name written that no man knows, but himself only. Now, this is admittedly a very strange language, isn't it? A written name. And we assume that John even saw it. It's written, so we must have saw the letters. But no man knows it. No man can comprehend it. No man understands it. And I have to say that the new man there, uh, what it actually literally is, is, is no one. Not not anyone knows the name but himself. Implying that not only men don't know, no man, but we can even go beyond that, no creature, no angel. Whether an unfallen angel or a fallen angel, whether those the men that are in the white horses, the sinless men who are uh, redeemed following him, or rather sinful men on the earth, no one can comprehend this name that he has. No creature. The only one who knows that name, who can comprehend that name, no man knew it, but only he himself. Just himself. He knows his name. He's the only one who knows his name. He knows what all his name signifies. Well, what does this mean then? Well, the name designates who he is. His person, what he is in in his essence, in his substance. Now, we use names to designate things. But we really use them to designate things from other things. If we were all called John, there'd be a lot of confusion, wouldn't there? So we get different names, so there's not that same confusion. But you're really not your name. Your name really doesn't describe your character. And that would be unlikely. You know, there's no name that describes your character. Our, Our names just designate us so that we have identification and we can be differentiated from others. There is no name that captures my essence as different from a name that you might have that may capture your essence. Uh, so we don't really have names. Whenever Adam named all the animals, he, got, he tried to get a name that would capture the, the essence, the the, the the main nature of that animal. But the Lord has a name that captures who he is. But we could never know it. We could never comprehend it. It, it would just be a word we, we would never really be able to enter in. I mean, we have a lot of names for the Lord, good and goodness, and Jesus and Christ, and they, they all describe something of his, his work, something of his redemption that he carries out, something of his activity. The names really reveal his attributes, or what he does, his actions. But you can't really get a, a name that captures his whole essence, his substance. And I think that's that's what's is is meant here, that his nature cannot be grasped by creatures, because he has a nature beyond creatures. He partakes of the divine mystery. God's nature cannot be known by us, because we are creatures. We couldn't comprehend him. He dwells in light that cannot be approached onto. Do you remember whenever all, in Athens there were all the different names for gods and? Paul looked at all the idols and he saw one to the unknown God. He thought that well, that's a good, good text for a sermon. The unknown God. Him I declare unto you. But in his essence he's unknown. He can't be comprehended. He's far above us. So I think this is referring to his divine name. His divine nature. He is God. He is son of God. He is Jehovah. Or, or some other name that is the name of his person, of his substance, of his essence. But we, we can't really know what it means. We couldn't begin to enter into it. I mean, we hardly know our own essence. What well, is a soul? We have a soul and we're conscious of having a soul, but how would you define a soul? How would you describe a soul? How would you name a soul? We just call it soul, spirit, like, like an invisible wind. It can't be seen, but it, it's there. It exists. It exists. It it operates, it has effects. But the Lord knows his name. Now you remember whenever Peter, before the Lord, the Lord asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And a lot of people were saying different things about the Lord. Then the Lord asked them, who do you say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of God. And the Lord said to him, Blessed are you, Peter. You've got it right. And it was my Father that has showed you that, that has revealed that unto you. And that is so profound a truth that I'm going to build my whole church on that. On the the doctrine of my person, the Son of God. And hell won't be able to stand against that doctrine because that is such a solid rock. There will be nothing to stand before the truth Of the divine person of the Saviour, the Son of God. So, this is his, his saving name, his hell destroying name, the name that sets him forth as the rock of salvation, the rock of the church, and this relationship that he has with the Father, a divine person in the Godhead, equal with God, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God. It's just a word and a name to us. We don't really understand what, what that means. What's involved in that? What does it feel like to be the Son of God? Equal with the Father. So that one who sees the Son of God sees the Father. We, we can define all the theology of that according to the careful use of the text of Holy Scripture. But no one really can comprehend it. It is a mystery. God God is a mystery. And God manifest in flesh is an even greater mystery. And there's no one knows who he is but himself. He's the only one who knows his name and all its fullness. No creature could comprehend it. So this is telling us he, he's God. He looks like a man, he wears the clothes of a man. He looks like he has a humanity like those who are following him on the white horses. He looks like the humanity that he has amongst those that he's coming to destroy. He looks like a man, but he is not a mere man. He has a name. A name above every other name. And no creature knows that name but himself. So we talk about three persons and one divine essence We talk about the personal names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talk about the relationship between the persons. The Father is unbegotten, but begetting, The Son is begotten, but uncreated. As our confession puts it ever so well, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten, nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. That's a powerful definition. Careful to the text of Holy Scripture. And we have to work within the confines of that definition. But who can, who can comprehend that? Who can, who can understand that? No one really knows what that means but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. No one knows what begotten means but the Son. No one knows what proceeding means but the Spirit. And the Father and the Son from whom he proceeds. He's a name. And he's the only one that knows it. And the Father as well. And the Holy Spirit. Remember Jacob met him and said, Tell me I pray thee thy name. And he says, Wherefore dost thou ask after my name? And he never told him either. But he blessed him. He did, it was this day. He, he wouldn't understand it. He wouldn't comprehend it. But he's able to bless him because he has the incomprehensible name. And do you remember Manoah, the father of Samson? He inquired of the angel of the Lord concerning his name. And that same one said, Why askest thou after my name? Saying, It is secret. It's mysterious. It's unknown. There's no point telling you it. Because the only one who comprehends it. Is myself and my father. And the Holy Spirit. So, So this is telling us. This writer is God. The mysterious. Second person in the Godhead. The one who was incarnate who perfectly knows himself and perfectly knows his Father. What did he say? All things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So he has this incomprehensible nature, this divine glory. And that's what we're being told here. And this is why he's true and faithful. This is why he is king of kings and lord of lords. This is why he will reign and conquer the nations. Because he partakes of the incomprehensible divine essence. And perfectly knows the father. And perfectly knows himself. The other name in verse 13 is of a same kind. His name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. Again, this is a name revealing who He is, revealing His relationship to God. He's the Word of God. He comes from the Father. He is as eternal as God because, you know, God wasn't dumb for generations and generations and then just suddenly, suddenly began to have a word that would have been a change in God no the word is as, as eternal as God himself the son of God is eternally begotten. it's an eternal relationship he is the word of God he's that close he has that eternal relationship this isn't a, a revealed word this isn't a bible word Or a written word, this is what he is in his essence. That man on the white horse. Is he not Jesus who was born in the manger? Yes, he is. Is he not Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on the tree? Yes, he is. But that's not all he is. He is the word of God. The eternal Word of God, the very Word of God Himself. The penman of this book, as you know, is John, and John wrote the Gospel. And that's how John started his Gospel to talk about the Word, about this person who came into the world. And who is He? He is the Word. John's Gospel uses this title as a personal name. Of Christ. Before he came into the world. Even before the world was made. He was the word. And you know it well. In the beginning. Was the word. And John there. He's using Genesis 1. He's using that same kind of language as Genesis 1. In the beginning God created. And he begins his gospel. He doesn't begin in the manger. He doesn't begin in the creation. He begins in the beginning. The eternal Word. Like Genesis. This is who this person is. The eternal Word. And he was with God. He is a distinct person from God, from God the Father. And yet he is God. That one true and living God. Because he's the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. God with God. God of God. The same as in the beginning with God. He's the Creator. He made all things. And without Him was not anything made, John says, that was made. This is the title that he's, he's using. He's called the Word of God. He's the Creator. He's the Maker of all things. He's the Eternal Son of God who was ever in the bosom of the Father. He's the light that came into the world. He's the light that shineth in the darkness. And then John goes on to say, and the word was made flesh. He became what he was not when he took to himself the humanity so that he could mount that white horse and subdue the world again to his father. He was the eternally begotten, the word of God, the son of God. And he's full of grace and truth, as the apostle tells us. In that first chapter. So you have to read John chapter 1 with this. You can see that John is identifying the person, who he is. And in his first epistle, and I think you should read the first epistle as a document that accompanied the Gospel of John. I think there, there is good indication that that was, was so. Whenever the Gospel of John was distributed, it may have been with the first epistle. And the first epistle of John uses similar language as the Gospel and as the book of the Revelation. And in First John chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning, sound familiar? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon our hands have handled. We handled him, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we lived with him. Who was this one that we lived with? He was the Word of Life. The life was manifested. This is this eternal life. The eternal God. Who has this eternal life. This eternal life of God was manifested. And we have seen it and bear witness. And show unto you that eternal life. Which was with the Father. And was manifested unto us. So again the word here. Is a name that describes his divine person. He was the word. Before he become man. And as man he is still the word. The Word now made flesh. So he's not a mere man. That's what John wants us to know. This one on the white horse. He's different from those men that are following him. He's different from those men that he's going forth to destroy. He's the God man. He's special. He's unique. 1 John 5, verse 7 There are three that bear record in heaven the Father, the Word. And the Holy Ghost. Now we usually say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But here John. Who uses this name as the name for the eternal person of Jesus Christ. Says the word. So we're getting to the essence of his person. Who he is. The only begotten of the Father. Now the question that we ask as we come to conclude tonight, is, why are these names so important? In this vision, this rider on the white horse, why are these names emphasized to us? Why do the seven churches need to know who this is? Why do we today as we look at this vision and look at that one upon the white horse. And we should really think, focus upon him for quite a while. But as we do, why are these names so important to us today? And as the world advances. And as the things wax worse and worse. And as we get to the end. And the struggling church in those last, very last times. Why do they especially need to know that he is coming back again and he has these names. Why do we need to know these names? That he has an incomprehensible name, that he has an essence beyond the understanding of any creature, that he is the eternal word of God and glorified humanity, that he has supreme sovereignty, King of kings and Lord of lords, and that he's absolutely faithful and true to all that he's ever said. In covenant to his people. Why do we need to know that? Well, to show us that the one who mounts that horse to come to us is competent. He is competent. He is mighty to save. He is able to deliver his people because he's faithful and true, because he's sovereign Lord. Because he's God, the incomprehensible, mysterious God. He is the eternal Word who made the worlds, Who mounts that horse to come into this world. That, that, that's why we, we need to know this. For our confidence in him. You know what it is whenever a, a worthy battle commander, maybe the, the army's nervous, there's a big battle going to have, as there is in this chapter, a big battle ahead a lot of warfare, a lot of fighting and the army's nervous, the soldiers are all nervous, they're all mustering the forces and they're all nervous but the supreme commander when he mounts the horse and they know his victories in the past they know he's competent they know he is like Oliver Crumble and when he appeared on the field before his soldiers, before the many battles that they had to fight The great warrior mustering up the forces and instilling the confidence in them. And that's what this is like. We're nervous. We're nervous warriors. We're nervous against the world, the beast and the devil and all the forces that are arrayed against us. We're nervous. We're scared. We're timid. We're frightened. But when the one who has these names mounts the horse, To muster the forces for the final battle. It instills a confidence. In the men. Of God. And in the women of the Lord. He's on a mission of warfare you see. Verse 11. He doth judge and make war. And verse 14. The armies which were in heaven followed him. These are armies going forth to war. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. He smites the nations with it. He's to rule them with a the rod of iron. And treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he gets the victory. And you'll notice there at the end of verse 17. It says come and gather yourselves together. Unto the supper of the great God. That's who's won the battle. That's who's led the field to be devastated with the bodies of the enemies of God. The great God has won the war. The great God is the one who's on the horse. The word. The one whose name is mysterious and unknown but to himself. The great God. And he gets the victory. His enemies are great and many. You have that in verse 18. That you may eat the flesh of kings. The flesh of captains. Mighty men. Horses have been there. Free and bond. An innumerable multitude in the warfare against him. The beasts. That mighty beast. The kings of the earth and their armies. Are all gathered together to make war against them. But he is competent. To defeat them. And we can have confidence. That he will have the competence to defeat them. Because his names give us that confidence. So these are the names of our Lord who is coming back again for us. His names are higher than, greater than any other names. We don't know who the beast is. We don't know who the Antichrist is. We don't know who the false prophet is. We don't know their names. But at the end of the day it doesn't really matter. We don't need to know their names. We don't care to know their names. We only care to know his name. You know, there are so many Bible scholars they have spent so long on this To find out who the Antichrist is. To get his name. Who is he going to be? Doesn't matter. As long as we know the Lord. As long as we know him who has the name. Those are the names that are revealed to our faith. And that we must focus on and believe in. And take hold of. So we don't have to worry about all the other names. Just these names of our great captain. And we need to keep on believing in his names. And we need to be part of that army that follows him. Who is thus named. And these names mean. He will subdue the world to himself. That he is competent. To bring this world to its conclusion. But brethren and sisters. This is not just about judgment. This is not just about the end of the world. This is not just about putting down the rebels. And all the transgressors. And all the enemies of the gospel. This is also about Mainly about bringing in the new. Bringing in something better. And that's why these names are revealed. Because this one who is coming to put down the nations is the word who in the beginning made all things. And now he's coming back again at the end of all things. Why? To make them all new. That's why. That's why this name is so important. He's coming back not just to end the old, but to bring in the new. He's coming back to brush all the rubbish, all the rubbish into the lake of fire. And as this word, this eternal word who was ever in the beginning, the word who is life and light, to bring in the new, to make all things new. Behold, I make all things new, he says. He is the new life. He is the resurrection life. He brings about the consummation of the new. That's why he's faithful and true to the new covenant. Because he brings in its final and ultimate consummation. In all things being new. He keeps his word. He keeps his covenant. And he's able to keep his covenant for he is the word who made all things and therefore he is well capable of renewing all things and then we get into the new heavens and the new earth and the renovated world that this eternal word brings in just by coming on his white horse so this is what this is all about this king of kings Adam failed he was a king he should have spread the message all over the globe and had God walking amongst all the people and all the nations on the earth but he failed and he failed miserably and he failed early but the last Adam is the King of kings and Lord of lords and the word himself. And he will bring in a new earth in which the temple of God shall abide in every corner and every part of it. That's what the last Adam brings in. And that's why this word, the word of God, is so important. Because that's a creative word. A resurrection word. A life giving, life-bringing, life-sustaining word, he won't fail that which was from the beginning, the word of life. So it's not just about judgment, it's also about bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 21 and all of that, the new abundant life of the new humanity In which all sin and wickedness is in the lake of fire. And now God dwells with men. Eternally. In and through Jesus Christ. The word of God. And may our faith in him increase and intensify. And may we not be discouraged. By whatever big names arise in the world. And whatever great wickednesses they get involved in. Our Lord will come back again and deal with it all. What a glorious day that will be.